I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we have a special radio show for interdisciplinary PhDs. The title is Top Interdisciplinary PhD Job Search Strategies. This was a very fun show to do, uh, very uh, enlightening conversations. We did a lot of interviews for our newest advanced program called the Interdisciplinary PhD Guild uh, with both humanities PhDs and social sciences PhDs and many others uh, who form this umbrella term that's fairly new uh, of the interdisciplinary PhD. So depending on how your department, your university, your country classifies it, you might be a social sciences PhD in one location uh, archaeology is a great example, uh, but it's classified as humanities in another location, the location being a different department, a different university, or a different country. Uh, so we're going to talk to these PhDs uh, who classically define themselves as non-STEM, although, uh, again, archaeology being another great example, is often also classified as STEM. We, I love this new term. And again, it's, it's, it is very recent, interdisciplinary PhD. So those are the PhDs we're focusing on. We have a great panel of interdisciplinary PhDs who are going to talk to us about this and about what's different for their PhD type, how they often see themselves as second-class citizens when they get into their job search, like it's harder for them to get a job. But in reality, they have a special skill set. They have some advantages over other PhD types that help them get hired for some positions, for example, user experience researcher positions. And then we're going to bring on a user experience researcher, interdisciplinary PhD working at a top company to talk to us more about this and how you can get hired too. So let's jump in with our panel now. Good to see all of you on. Regina, hi. Hi. Good to see you. you. Yeah. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks for staying up. I know it's late there. Good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Christopher, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Good to see you on again. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Tina, how are you? Yeah, good. How are you? Pretty good. I really appreciate all of you being here. So the first question I want to ask all of you is, you know, where are you in your transition, your job search, if you can introduce your company position, et cetera. Um, and then talk about, and then we're going to talk about after that, kind of how you classify yourself and why there's so much overlap. Uh, in terms of these phrases that we're using now, I think especially in the last couple of years. Uh, so Regina, the position and company you're with first, please. All right, so I am a senior uh, advisor of methodology um, in the market research area. Um, the company is called uh, Phantom Shopping. Phantom Shopping, that's right. And you have experience in a couple of yeah. different fields too, right? Now that you- Yes, I do. Business development and social- Yes, and also, um, yes, yeah. this. Which is good because we're going to talk about these different roles, and, and a lot of you don't realize how many options you do have uh, in industry or otherwise. Uh, so please say hi uh, to Regina if you haven't yet. And Christopher, same question to you: current uh, company and position. Sure, I'm the um, I'm a senior UX researcher at the Home Depot, the big company you do know. Um, so I work on all the B two C stuff on the e commerce division um, right there. Perfect, Tina. Same question to you. 
So I currently work as a data and evaluation manager at United Way of Central Alabama. Uh, I think you have PAC Health. Previously, yes. that's where I transitioned. So I actually did two transitions wow. since joining uh, Cheeky Scientist Associates. So it Great. just proves your method. Well, congrats. Please say hi to Tina too. And uh, the next question I have for you is, you know, this is a program that we've had requests for for years, um, whether, you know, humanities, social sciences, interdisciplinary. Why don't you tell us about your specific backgrounds, each of you, how your university or department uh, classified yourself, and then maybe tell us a little bit about the overlap between these words we're hearing, whether social sciences, humanities, interdisciplinary. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll start with you, Regina. All right, yes, yeah, so you uh, already mentioned that I have a PhD in archaeology, um, which is um, humanities in Europe, but I think it is rather social sciences in the US. So it's kind of like in the border, I guess. Um, sorry, I, I don't know why, but it's always no, muted. No, you're okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Continue. I don't know what's what's happening, but um, yeah. So so um, so I um, I did my PhD um, in the humanities department in in UK. Somebody's muting me. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. <laughs> I don't, it must just be Zoom. Yeah. So I, I think uh, that's a great example, right? In one country, it's uh, humanities; another, it's social sciences. I appreciate that. Um, Christopher, same question to you: What's your background? And then, you know, any anything you can help us uh, do in terms of understanding? Do you see yourself also as an inter interdisciplinary PhD, or, or what else you might go by? Sure, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think that I'm on the hard humanities side of this. Um, I come from a like English undergraduate degree. I have an MFA in creative writing and poetry. I taught that for a couple of years before getting a PhD. Um, I went to Emory um, and my department was uh, strictly interdisciplinary. It was the Institute of Liberal Arts. It's one of the, it, it was one of the longest running interdisciplinary humanities PhDs in the country, in the US uh, specifically. And the way we had to do it is that we had basically functional areas. So my areas were American studies, uh, critical theory, and um, history, I guess, uh, as okay. the, the third one. So, but I did a, um, my dissertation involved a three year long ethnography. So wow. um, I wouldn't call myself an anthropologist because I know that anthropologists really care about the borders of their discipline. But uh, so that's why it's American studies. No, that's great. And uh, you mentioned you're a UX researcher. I think it's a great example that we see equal people classifying themselves as humanities and social sciences getting into UX, which is yep. a good example. And uh, we'll come yeah, back to that. For sure. Uh, Tina, how about you? Yeah, so I am an anthropologist by training. I'm a medical anthropologist. Um, and um, it's funny that Christopher mentioned us caring about our borders. I actually did not care about my borders. Um, and so I was trained as a social scientist, but I would say that I actually work at the intersections of social science and the humanities. Um, I also have a certificate in gender and race studies. And so I was actually trained by a more humanities slanting um, professor in that department. Okay. And so it's, you know, I think, I think it's kind of borderless in, in a lot of ways, some of the, the conversations that we're having. 
Just making some notes there. I think this is great. Yeah. So interdisciplinary humanity, social sciences, um, that's what we're focused on today across the board. So if you're here, this is definitely for you. You've seen the overlap. It's almost a kind of a perfect overlap with all of you uh, as panelists. Uh, so here's the question I have. Last question for the panel. We've seen, and we did a lot of interviews with people that saw themselves as humanities, social sciences, interdisciplinary. And there was this general sense very often that they saw themselves as kind of second-class citizens to people that might be more in the hard stems, right? Like a, a life science or physical sciences, which is absolutely not the case, which all of you have learned at this point. So was there a time when you felt that way, or at least others around you have, that you could talk about it so that those, are he those people here might um, understand that it's not just them? And then what have you learned since you transitioned about your values specifically as an interdisciplinary uh, PhD uh, in industry or otherwise outside of academia? So I'll start with you, Regina. Yes, yeah, so I didn't feel like a second class PhD when I did my PhD, so at university, but when I decided to transition and I was looking into my skills and what can I bring to the, like, the industry table, I felt like I have nothing to give, actually. Um, and this is when I felt like that my my um, my PhD wasn't as worthy as like a STEM PhD. Um, but then, like during my my transition time, I've learned a lot about about uh, my own skills and my own uh, experiences and how to communicate them much better. And um, and then I could just transition. And since then, then it's it's great. <laughs> It's easy looking back on, but I know a lot of you are going through that because we hear it all the time. So um, when you start to transition, if you feel like you don't have value in industry, it's absolutely not true. So I know Christopher has more on that uh, as well. So I'll turn to you, Christopher. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, whenever I sort of was on the job market, the academic job market, and I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. I need to do something different. I think that my big anxiety was less about which discipline I was in, but that I didn't get a business degree. <laughs> I was like, uh, it's kind of late. Maybe I should have just done this whenever I was 21 instead of like get a bunch of degrees that didn't seem to have any kind of viable um, teaching trajectory, right? Yes. Uh, anymore, as we all know, the, the justification, et cetera. But um, so whenever I was doing that, I that, that was something that I kind of regretted in a sense. And I was even kind of considering maybe I should just get like a... Um, job at a university so I can get like a discount on the MBA or something like this so that I, I can transition later and kind of hold it off on that. But then once I got my job, like I found that one of the real values that we bring to it is that we're coming into business and seeing things from a different perspective. And often it is that perspective that's built on empathy and recognizing and understanding human behavior and things like that, that other people, when they see it in the business context, they're just like floored because it's something different and magical to them. And it's useful for their business purposes as well. So. Hmm. Yeah. Well said. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, whether you want to call it more of a qualitative research or qualitative uh, information or data, you, you know how to evaluate how to interview actual people, not just look at data, but you can also look at data, extremely valuable. Uh, thank you. Tina, same question to you. Yes, I'm gonna answer this a little differently than my colleagues here. Um, so I was fortunate enough to have a dissertation chair that really um, told me to really imagine my position outside of academia. And he even encouraged somebody from 
the Centers for Disease Control to be on my dissertation uh, committee, which for me was really a positive testament to some of the advisors out there, right, who are encouraging to look outside of academia, uh, which was really important. Now, having said that, I suffered from imposter syndrome. I suffered from, you know, this idea of like, you know, and I still do, that's a work in progress. Confidence is a work in progress. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was, it was really kind of concerning um, or concerning to then pivot away from academia. Um, I was actually fortunate enough to teach a little bit, but decided it wasn't for me for different reasons. And so um, I used my network to leverage my skill set. Um, and what I've learned, I think, in working in industry now is really thinking of the ways in which my skills are so transferable to industry and how useful I am. Um, it's incredible that I'm working in the nonprofit industry now and some of the meetings that I get to be a part of and the decision-making. Um, so I think it's really useful and, and I'll echo Christopher's um, um, statement about empathy. It's hugely needed right now, particularly mm -hmm. in this you know, political climate and everything. So um, yeah, just those no, comments. Great insights, thank you so much. Please thank our panel. And I want the overall message to be here is, you know, we're focused on humanities, social sciences, interdisciplinary, but I don't want you to continue for the rest of your life defining yourself in some box or at the intersection of some box even. I want you to see all the possibilities that are ahead of you and where you're going, not where you've been. Of course, you can use it and you can leverage it. Everything that you've done and accomplished is important, but don't let it limit you. That's what I'm saying. Do not let how you are defining your degree or how your university or department did, which department you were put in, make you in any way think that you can't get into XYZ job. That's the goal here. And that's why we brought our panel on. So congratulations for all of you on your success. Thank you. So Christopher is one of the co-creators and Regina is also one of the co-creators. She was on and uh, they're both part of the program, right? So Regina is more on the social sciences side. Christopher is more on the humanities and the board is all interdisciplinary. It's a brand new program. And we wanna talk about what you can do as an interdisciplinary PhD to get hired in industry. What career tracks are available uh, to you? So Christopher, we've been here before, right? We've talked about the, the doctorates being awarded, keeps rising and the numbers of job openings uh, particularly in these interdisciplinary areas keep dropping. So what are some of the things that you saw in your last few years in academia, which you know probably encouraged you to get out, some of the things you're seeing now that are particularly concerning for interdisciplinary PhDs? Yeah, no, that's, that's you know, it was really brutal the last couple of years in academia and it, and it remains that way, right? So um, I transitioned in 2018, um, my area, that I was teaching in and that my dissertation in is work in American culture. So like in some ways I should have seen the writing on the wall much earlier than I did because I was already studying the concepts of work conditions in America. Um, but as you all know, like a lot of universities are relying more and more on adjuncts, contingent labor. I was just, I was, uh, it got to a really dark point, I guess, when I was like late in the job application. I hadn't applied to all the good jobs in the, the, the beginning part of the year because you know that there's the sort of seasonality of academic jobs. And then I was like on the last application of a lecture track position in some place that 
like I wasn't from, I didn't have any connections to just someplace random in the country that I didn't particularly have any a, a reason to move there in a department that didn't even have many PhDs teaching in it, right? It was just people that were there for a long time, but they were still asking for the two page single space cover letter, like examples of classes, like your CV, three letters of recommendation, three fake classes that you've never taught yet that you might teach one day. And then like <laughs> a, a statement of collaboration to stay, you know, it's like the 60 page document and you're just like, I can't go through this anymore. And I know that that job probably had 400, 500 applicants all people with good PhDs from places who are critical thinkers who would do great in that job. There just wasn't enough of them going around. And, you know, to be kind of like frank about it, it was probably going to be for like what I was making as a grad student. Like it was going to be like 30 or 40 grand a year to do that. So I just was like, I needed to, to, to do this. There's not enough jobs and it's getting worse. Um, all the trajectories are getting worse than that, as you all know, I'm sure. Yeah, but but it, I think this the stress point here is if you think it's particularly bad for you uh, as a social scientist or humanity, hu, you know, human sciences, it is. It's because it is. It, it's really bad. It's just there's even less funding there, and I think that's why we have to overcome that kind of second class citizen mindset. It's not because you're less valuable. It's because the system is more broke for certain departments. That's all. Um, all right. So so. We, I really want to focus on the skills here, Christopher. This is something that, uh, you know, is covered extensively in the program. We're showing some of the skills here overall that, that uh, people with an interdisciplinary background has. But can you pull out some of those things? You know, you mentioned things like empathy, qualitative analysis, focus groups, some of the stuff you do in UX. Pull out some of those things that are different skills that you have versus, you know, a traditional STEM PhD as an example. Right. So one of the one of the main things uh, is going to be part of that kind of qualitative, like being able to identify the rich lived experiences somebody has and then figure out what's going in there. Most of what businesses in some capacity is problem solving. So that category you see there on the slide, the problem solving, being able to figure out what you're doing and that your analysis of this, you know, we call it data, but it's, you know, often transcripts or observed behavior, yeah. information. And what you're doing is trying to figure out what to do with it. Like the next step of this is that critical and creative thinking that you can have that says, okay, I can see this person, I can recognize what their problems are and how can I solve it? So that's like the number one, I think one of the most important things that I do in my job, in my job. Yeah. And, uh, you know, th so for those of you that don't understand how that might work in industry, employers are looking to get information back from, uh, the consumers or the market or whatever, we call these different types of analyst positions traditionally. Uh, there's two ways to typically go about doing that. You get quantitative data, some sort of market research company or management consulting company, or just evaluating user activity on an app, uh, which Christopher can speak more to later, but also talking to human beings, <laughs> you know, in a focus group in a way that gets them to uh, give you information that's not, uh, you don't lead the you lead them down a certain path. And Christopher, you, what you use this word in your experiences that you have that's like an interview, but obviously not uh, that you did in your research work. What is that word again? Um, I think that, I think in UX, maybe you're referring to con contextual inquiry. Uh, yeah, but you, in academia, what's the academic word that you had a lot of like certain number of hours to do? for inner, but oh yeah ethno like yeah so yes. ethno yeah, yeah ethnographic research yeah it's really funny because i think that i kind of went into the weeds on this on the uh 
the, the training, actual yeah. program. But uh, like what we call ethnography is, is very like an elaborate process. It's a series of different methods that go toward the writing of a human life, right? Or a series of human life, but whatever. But people use ethnography just lit in industry just literally to mean like going on site to somebody's place and doing an interview with them. And so it's like, which is not necessarily not a part of ethnography, but it's funny because some of the larger concerns that you might have in your academic life, you don't necessarily have in the business world. What they're looking for though, is that lived experience in kind of a bite-sized way that they can go in and do this. The kind of ethnography you might do in a business is more short form. It's not like this long form thing, but yeah, yeah. it's, I think that's the best example of like the academic training that you all have, have here that can be leveraged for industry that someone like in traditional STEM could not do and doesn't even know what it is. I can't even say the word still, but I, I, I will uh, practice. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is holding PhDs back from industry? So if you're an interdisciplinary PhD, we, we have the slide here, but speak from your real world experiences, Christopher, what do you, and, and from the people you've talked to, and I know you've talked to many, what really holds them back? Do you think? Um, a a couple of things. One of the main things is just awareness about the career opportunities, which I see is your second bullet point right there. Like a lot of humanities people, like um, Tina had a great advisor giving her some advice about getting outside roles. I didn't have that circumstance. And they were great advisors in other ways, but you just don't know what's out there. I didn't know about the UX field um, as a field per se and a job opportunity in research until two months before I got the job. Um, I mean, I had the skills to do it. It's all stuff that we had that's transferable, but it's like, how do you actually make that connection to where people are hiring in? So that's one of the the biggest, mm. biggest things. And I think in some ways that gives you a, a path forward. Once you know the career opportunities, then you can start putting in together how you can achieve that type of career, whether it's UX or something else. Yeah. And UX, of course, is the, the popular one. I see some of you asking questions on that. We're going to get to that, but there's a lot of other options too. And I, I think one thing that I heard from a lot of the interdisciplinary PhDs when we were interviewing this is that they want to make sure that other types of careers are covered in terms of their options, much more so than I think uh, traditional STEM. Uh, so in the field, you'll hear about a partial pivot or a full pivot, the field of job searching as a interdisciplinary PhD. So the partial pivot Right? We have higher education, secondary school, academic publishing, not-for-profit not officer. This is a popular one, government policy, diversity and inclusion officer. Right? We heard that from Tina. But then the full pivot, the more traditional industry roles, financial analyst, product manager, technical medical writer, UX, business development. Uh, Regina had experience here, international development, consulting, industry researcher. So just... I'm curious, Christopher, from your point of view, right, with your background, the partial pivot versus the full pivot, what have you heard from other interdisciplinary PhDs that, you know, might be considering a partial pivot from a full pivot? How could you decide? This is just a great first step to at least separate it into two categories and decide, make that small decision before you actually zero in on the actual job title. Right. Yeah. So um, the way that I kind of did it, because I kind of went I kind of pursued both paths during my transition, like I at least explored the options of them. I didn't hit the partial pivot as hard, but I have a lot of different friends from my pro my program that work as either curators or librarians, um, you know, some academic publishing, nonprofits, different things like that. And one of the things that though, the big benefit I think you're going to see there on that partial pivot is that you can still sort of have the lifestyle of an academic to an extent. I mean, you're going to be working year round, but 
you're, you're on campus, you're, you know, going toward the mission of the university of the mission of uh, collecting and disseminating knowledge, things like that. So that might appeal to you in that way. I mean, the drawbacks is that the hiring takes a lot longer. It has its own like kind of very specific uh, and almost hyper local traditions around hiring. <laughs> I mean, it's really institution by institution. And so it's a little bit more difficult to do a general, you have to, you still have to network in. So if you're trying to avoid networking, that's not still not going to happen with a lot of partial pivot things, you got to know the people to get in there. But like, I have a friend who's uh, already a curator, like in a very top position at another university applying for another one. And it just takes, even in that level, it's just taking months and months to get through it. And so that's the case. Also the full pivot's going to get you uh, more of the financial opportunity that mm. you're looking for here. Like the, the money's just going to be better. Um, the full pivot, you know, there's some really recognizable and, ways to get into this. There's a lot more people who are sharing this. People are trying to get into these careers from a lot of different paths um, because especially in technology, like all of the ones that you see here, user experience, product manager, technical writer, um, all of these things, like they have such varied backgrounds. There's actually not programs for being a product manager, right? There's actually more academic programs for being a user researcher than there are for being a product manager. So like one of the top ones at our place, he was an English major, just a BA, and then ended up being a, a product manager, you know, not necessarily even having the math skills right at the first. So you can get into these things and the, there's a lot more clarity, I feel, around what it takes to get those jobs. Mm. Yeah. And and we're going to dive into each separately here. So we talked about a partial pivot, right? The intersection between academia and industry, uh, looking at some of these individual roles, higher education administrator, right? Uh, believe it or not, we've actually had questions on what these people do. Some of you might already be considered an administrator, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> can you describe this briefly, Christopher? Yeah, a higher administ uh, education administ administrator is somebody who oversees academic programs. Um, basically, you're looking at people who are handling grants for an office or handling student success. They're deans, they're directors, things like this. A lot of people are making their transition from this. I have a friend on my team, actually, who was an administrator, went the same PhD program for me for 15 years, and now he's working with me at Home Depot as a UX researcher. Um, and so his job, the transferable skills that really prepared him, like if you're already doing work like this, it was something that was really beneficial because a lot of the pro project management that you're dealing with, having to uh, work collaboratively, collaboratively with people, um, being responsible for budgets and hiring, all of that stuff is going to be key to being a high, higher education administrator. Hmm. And then what about a secondary school teacher, learning consultant? This is something that surprised me, but you know, there's a lot of community colleges you can get hired as a professor at, make good pay, and this the schedule is not uh, too intense. But what what are some of the other possibilities under this banner? Um, I mean, you could go into doing some teaching. There's some there's some stuff that's actually if you're really like, I have one friend, for instance, who is uh, trying to get this one job. That's a combination of a teaching thing, but it also involves like doing grant writing. So sometimes you can find some really kind of interesting mm -hmm. things. And that one was very well paid. Um, but, you know, teaching is one of these things. Um, I have some thoughts about that that I can take offline, but <laughs> I think that it, <laughs> that, that it has its own issues uh, with teaching. Yeah. But if you're going into learning consultancy, that might be an interesting path. They have a lot of places that are trying to get whip schools into shape at the district level, private schools, all of these types of things. Yeah. If you do private schools, you're going to get a little bit more of an academic style 
thing, depending on where you are. I know that's highly differentiated. And and this is why uh, there is this program for all of you who are uh, social scientists or human sciences. You got to understand what the pros and the cons are. And there's a lot of both, uh, especially for the, I think these partial pivot positions, Uh, but they can be a good first step for you if you want to eventually make a full pivot, but you're not ready yet. Uh, Academic publishing, Christopher. Yeah, so academic publishing, um, this is something that I actually consider. I considered publishing both from the academic side and the non-academic side. So you're looking at um, people who are doing editing, who are potentially fielding manuscripts, who are checking this out, making sure that they align with some kind of editorial standards. Um, There's also some of the more tangential stuff with marketing um, that you're going to deal with at sales, which would really prepare you to get completely out if you want. The benefit of academic publishing, and I see a lot of a lot of people go into this because you already have that knowledge base, right? You have the subject matter expertise. And so you're basically a shoe in to be able to determine what or what does not pass muster in terms of uh, uh, an academic press. And, and nonprofit officer, I would say this is one of the most popular partial pivot ones, NPO. Uh, what do these officers do? So there's a whole lot of different things uh, that a nonprofit officer does. I mean, because nonprofits are essentially businesses, right? They're also run like businesses. The difference here that you're going to be able to do, you're going to be able to shape the direction of something that potentially really kind of aligns with your uh, interests, your ethics, um, you know, whatever you believe in, this is a way you could really do it. So one of the, the reasons that a lot of us consider getting out of academia, besides the regular job stuff, is that we feel like we're not necessarily making the impact on the world that we want to, right? We do all of this stuff, we might publish our things, people read it two or three years later, and we can affect teaching. But as a nonprofit person, you can put actual things into action, you're doing, you know, yes, we might say praxis at this point. So, uh, versus the theory of it. So this is where you, your feet are on the ground and you're doing it. Uh, government policy advisor, Christopher. Yeah, so this is this is another place where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think about it this way, but they actually value PhDs at a, it, like in a way that certain other places don't. They see a, a immediate value to it. And so there's a lot of places in government and think broadly about what government means. Mostly we're thinking at the federal level of different agencies that are putting into place government policy, but you can basically be a person in one of these things that really changes the direction of these because you're writing white papers or you're writing like, I know that the, um, like, certain intelligence agencies with letters, they um, have these 10 page papers that they're writing to sort of determine what's going on. And so if you have skills like with languages, if you have skills with understanding different cultures, if you have understanding labor policy, environmental policy, all of the types of things similar to the NGO thing, you can really potentially make a difference in there. And I know that there's like some strains on the idea of working for the government, but you can go there. One thing to be aware of, they have a very standardized application process. It's very different than applying to other things. Like you, like your resume is like a combination resume cover letter. Uh, yes. It's like four pages long and it takes you months to get hired as well because, and it's all determined on funding. So there's some give and takes with government stuff. Yeah, and I think we see a lot more interdisciplinary PhDs going to government as well as nonprofit. Uh, so understanding that process is, is a key uh, focus of this program versus uh, anything else you'll see out there because the government application process can be extensive and take a lot of time. So I'm going to ask you both about this one and then Regina, you can recap all of them, but diversity and inclusion officer, uh, a, a role that's increasing for sure in terms of uh, available positions. We've seen a lot of people get into it. 
a quick recap, Christopher, and then your thoughts, Regina. Sure. Yeah. DNI, um, diversity inclusion, you know, this is something that it's, you know, long overdue in a lot of companies. Um, it's really trying to bring to forefront issues of equity and hiring. It's something that I'm, um, you know, passionate about, especially in my areas work in American culture, but it's a lot of people that are trying to make sure that workplace is a safe and equitable work environment. A lot of places, um, you can do this all like in-house. Um, I have a friend who does this as a consultant. He's not a, from a PhD program or anything, but he does it in a consulting firm where you going around with it. But a lot of this is another way to, this one's closer in some ways to business because you're taking, you're still taking that kind of, you know, the sort of human centered, uh, academic, humanistic way of thinking, but you're pulling it into businesses to reshape how they're organized, the, organizing their workplaces. So it could be a very valuable and a rewarding um, and ethically sound career choice. So we're going to go into full pivot now. Uh, you talked about these full pivot positions. These are more of your standard for-profit industry positions, the top ones that interdisciplinary PhDs get into. So financial analyst, a lot of us you know, might be thinking, how could I get into this? But anything that ends in analyst, just means you analyze information. Doesn't matter if that's qualitative, quantitative, you can do that. And, and then Christopher, as you explain this, this is a good one to do it on because I think a lot of people are like, what's the human side of this? There's no human side. I would argue the behavioral right psychology of how people spend money, if you've ever studied market fluctuations, it's completely irrational. And that's why they need you as an interdisciplinary PhD. So can you tell us a little bit about this from that perspective, Christopher? Yeah, sure. Something like a financial analyst, um, you know, depending on your background, especially if you have a lot of the social sciences people in here, like the stuff that you're dealing with, that you're, you're taking in your um, your PhD program or that you've done as a scholar that involve like statistics and stuff like this and data modeling, you're still going to be able to, like, this is what it is. The, the difference between you and say like a a pure econo uh, economist or, you know, somebody who just went to an MBA program that did this is you will be able to inject that kind of human behavior element and also to try to like bring in that kind of empathy so that people aren't just going to be data points on something like that. And sometimes you can have some insights that people won't be able to have that way because of that added uh, perspective that you bring to it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I can't tell you the value of that, like we have a lot of employer partners and across the board going through the data is one thing, but if you can, if you have any understanding of the human component, uh, where, where logic breaks down in particular, like people in masses might make this decision for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Uh, and you can understand that you can go, you know, you can get that the contextual insight, which uh, Christopher talked about makes it very valuable. Absolutely. All right, Christopher, I know you have a lot to say on this one. It's a very popular role for both humanities and social scientists. Christopher is in this role. So if you are humanities or social sciences, you should be looking at this role and you should get into this program because you get access to Christopher and other UX researchers in it. Go yeah, ahead, absolutely. So uh, UX research for all of you um, people coming in from either social science or humanities that have like kind of a, like the, that you're dealing with people themselves, like whether it is through an ethnography, whether it's through surveys, um, any kind of way that you're dealing with live human people, um, this is a good career path, right? And anthropology used to be called applied anthropology. Now we have a tech side on top of it. So that's one area that UX comes from. The other area is human factors, which is cognitive psych. So you bring those two things together basically in the late nineties and it creates this whole field of user experience uh, research. What you're doing is you're putting 
you know, a lot of ways, one end of it uh, is you're putting software products or potentially non-software products in front of people, individuals, and seeing how they interact with it, right? How do they use it? Where do things break down? You're trying to improve the usability. You're trying to see what people who are just in a lab or in a, uh, like in front of your computer terminal, writing up a bunch of code won't be able to see, right? You're giving them that human element and keeping them aligned with the what you're trying to do with this. So like one thing, I'm sure you've experienced this across your life. A lot of software doesn't seem to be built for you, right? It's solving a problem that you don't actually have. Uh, and so you don't use it, things that you've abandoned that seem too difficult or too like off the point. Um, this is where we come in to find out what it is. On the other end of it, on the more ethnographic side of it, we're trying to figure out how people live in general, right? Um, according to topics and themes, so that we can find issues in their life that we can solve with the technology that we do. So I, I'm at Home Depot, right? Home goods, uh, home improvement, things like that. So like the types of projects that I'm doing are going to be involved in home building in some sense, right? So I like, for instance, are you redoing your kitchen? Let's figure out what a redo looks like and figure out where their pain points, something you're going to hear a lot in the UX. And then we try to figure out how can the shopping be better? How can the projects be better? Something like this. Another thing I'm going to say is that no matter what your background, the interdisciplinary nature of it, there's probably a side of this that's good for you. There's both. I, I came in on the qualitative side, but guess what? Right now I'm running a big quantitative benchmarking program. So, and you learn it on the job even, and I didn't have this background before, but some people have pure quantitative um, UX researchers. Some of them are pure qualitative. You can also, it's side, the side of this is that becoming a UX designer is also an option, right? All of these things require minimal technical skills in terms of like doing, you don't have to learn coding. You don't have to go get a certification necessarily. Yes. What you need to do is be able to understand how people behave in certain limited ways, right? In general is good, but in like how they're reacting to the software and figure out solutions to fix that. Hmm. Yeah, well said. I mean, I, I cannot speak uh, more highly about this role. Every PhD I know that has gotten into this, whether social sciences or humanities, any interdisciplinary PhD has been very happy. Chris is, Christopher is very happy, <laughs> right? We have others. Uh, we have one that I mentioned Hilton before. We had somebody get hired at Hilton uh, who has a social sciences background uh, in UX. It's an incredible role because it's, it's very hot, very topical, very current, and it's just going to keep uh, skyrocketing, right? Software is eating everything. So you get to do that, but like Christopher said, you still get to have that human component. More importantly, you're you're valued because you have training in that human component. Uh, and the I, I, I just want to add one more thing to it that I didn't because a lot of people have like like especially when Tina was talking to made me give that thought about the like medical anthropology or things that deal with medicine. Yes, you know what's a really hot field? Medical UX research, like. And this is like, in some ways, life or death. It's like how people are going to deal with like a dialysis machine or something like this. Yeah. And so you're actually figuring out testing and, and you go through like all the things that you're going to be familiar with it from your, your academic research are going to transfer 100%. And you, if you, you have any kind of experience with that, you are who are they looking for, for those few positions. Incredible. Yeah. Exciting. Another one, exciting one's business developer, right? So Regina, one of the other uh, co-creators, program leaders, uh, had this role. I know you know a lot about it too, Christopher. So why would uh, somebody with a you know interdisciplinary background be hired as a in a business developer in business development? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so business development, like one of the key things that you have to do is be a 
a people person, right? You have to have that empathy. You're, you're basically selling things in a sense, but you also have to do this in a very human way. And, you know, like going and doing this and being able to not only interact with people on a human level, because I think that sometimes like that's a soft skill that's super important that I feel like is, is there, but also being able to understand the context that you're doing, being able to hold both of those things in your mind. So how these institutions function with each other, what's the context in which they're interacting with one another? Um, what's the business outlook? You have to have all of these types of things. And so managing a complex and I'm gonna get hard humanities here, archive of information uh, where you're pulling all these things together and having clear direction with it, you can really bring your business a lot of value to that because you can execute uh, having that bigger picture in mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great role. Um, and the qualitative relationship components built into it. Um, industry researcher, uh, this, a couple of you asked about this, there's no, there's no trick to this title. <laughs> You're gonna do research. It just might be more on the, the qualitative uh, uh, side of it. Uh, I think think tanks is something a lot of us haven't considered. Christopher, can you talk a bit about this role? Yeah, so industry researcher, and I applied for some of these or networked with some of these too. You're thinking of like, when I think of it this way, um, there's a couple of ways, right? Market research is its own thing that's separate from UX research that a lot of you might be very good at. That's where you're gonna get more focus groups and uh, like uh, survey work, but also like, Pew or um, Gartner or Forrester, they're researchers that are researching business and they're doing, they're really at an intersection of a lot of different fields. So sometimes their research looks a lot more like UX research does. Sometimes it looks like market research. Sometimes it looks like a big economic forecasting data. Sometimes it's a lit review. So there's a lot of different versions of this and you're going to see it both in the kinds of consulting uh, adjacent firms that I was talking about. You're going to see it in-house in a lot of companies. Um, it just really depends. Like there's a lot of research that's there that doesn't have the sort of uh, background that UX research does that's very specific. But those positions, you know, are uh, yeah. in, in a lot of places, you might not expect them there. there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think as uh, interdisciplinary PhDs, you have more options in many cases, certainly separate options from people with different PhD backgrounds, you probably haven't considered them. I mean, these are positions where you can be paid extremely well. We're talking corporate level salaries and benefits and where you're more valuable than somebody that doesn't have an interdisciplinary PhD. This is probably too eye-opening for a lot of you that you can't even believe it, but these are out there. And it's not that you're not valuable, you're just invisible to employers for these roles. Getting your resume right, right? Your LinkedIn profile showing you you know, kind of how to get away from that academic mindset of as much information as possible. I think especially for interdisciplinary PhDs, all of the theory and all of the options and getting you focused on a career path and then getting you into it. Uh, once you make that pivot or half pivot, partial pivot, it's easy. So product manager, I know you know a lot about this one too, Christopher. Yeah, product management is a really great position too. It's going to be a little bit harder to come right out of a PhD program and get this just because of that being recognizable. So looking at some of these other software things, that said, if you have any kind of technology background at all, this is something perfect for you. Yes. Um, I, this is something I wanted to pivot into and I'm still considering pivoting into it. Just really, I keep my options, keep my yeah. options open. So <laughs> the product management is sort of the intersection in a software situation between business, 
uh, UX, the uh, user experience, both research and design and um, engineering. So uh, computer programmers who are actually doing the code. Um, and what you're doing a lot of ways is like what your teaching experience is like. This is what really appealed to me about it because you don't have direct reports, but you're leading a team to do something. So a lot of what your main transferable soft skill is, is influence without authority. You have to be able to inspire people toward a vision. You're basically like the little CEO of a specific part of a company, right? And you're you, like that, that product lives or dies by uh, what your decisions are to profits and losses. And by product right here, I mean like part of a website. So you yes. might not think about it this way. Like, as I, I realize I'm talking about this, it might not be clear, but like, like if you go on Facebook, you know, whenever you have the groups tab, somebody owns that groups tab. Uh, somebody owns the, there's a whole t organization that handles messenger. So like whenever somebody handles the, the way that your feed repopulates, there's every little part that could be broken up will be broken up because it's an easier way to do it. And all of those have these so-called functional cross-functional teams. So you have on that team, a UX researcher, a UX designer, UX architect, um, two, two developers and a QA person at Facebook. I think that's one of the ways they're organizing it and they run these sprints. So the product manager leads that team but they're individual contributors. So it's a really great role. Um, it's a huge upside on that. And if you're interested in eventually becoming like a CEO or a director level type of position, this puts you in a really good position to like manage um, a business. Yeah, these are, I mean, this just means like Christopher said, and I love that you did that, Christopher, great teaching. Um, it's just any aspect of the business. And for a software company, it could be an aspect of a feature is a product, mm -hmm. right? Um, it could be, um, I don't know, like uh, an aspect of what's something else. Like we had somebody in, in uh, I mentioned Hilton again, you know, somebody who just focuses on uh, what types of uh, finishings to get into the hotel rooms. That's their whole focus. That's their product. They're a product manager of that uh, task or activity, that deliverable um, feature, et cetera. Okay, writing. Right, so we might hear different terms here. Medical writing is so ubiquitous now that everything's medical writing, even if it has nothing to do with medical. But technical writer, different writing positions, humanities PhDs are often hired into these. I think we have to cover them. What can you tell us about them? This is another good way to get on a product team because a lot of things that you have to have documentation on it, right? So like, especially if your product is something physical um, as well, like I have a friend who's a product manager of like uh, smart home products that do like smart, um, carbon monoxide things, right? They need somebody to write up both the instructions, but also to document what their purpose is in here. So being a technical writer is there, but there's so many different writing positions that you wouldn't believe. Uh, you can get into these, you're gonna be a shoe in for it, especially if you're on a writing, you know, dis you wrote a dissertation, you wrote literally a book um, in it. And a lot of this is being able to pay attention to the precision and language, things like that. And you're gonna see this from everywhere from large corporate uh, entities. Um, to anything else. My next door neighbor is like a technical writer for like Chick-fil-A. So this is a big job. <laughs> yeah, and I love that you gave that example. Uh, Chick-fil-A writer, like who would think that they would hire PhDs for this? Uh, they do all the time. Yeah. Uh, international development, this is, a, this is a great one to talk about. And I know you have some things to say, Christopher. Yeah, um, so one of the things that a lot of people, especially in humanities and social sciences is that you know, you understand a lot about how different uh, places in the world uh, might function. You understand the, the complexities and the localities. And if you didn't study it already, you could learn it because you're trained and being attuned 
to those different lived experiences that people have. And a lot of businesses are international um, in different ways, right? Um, I don't have to deal with that very much in my job because Home Depot is only North America. Um, even though there's international development there, it's not quite as advanced and it's really, really established in a sense. But a lot of other, I have, you know, a lot of people that I know that are dealing with this in international circumstances. So things like, you know, anthropology, cognitive linguistics, um, things like this, where you're able to do these things. There's so many different areas. Um, you know, some of these things, policy development, uh, communication sponsorship, you're, um, you're really just trying to make sure that whatever organization you're dealing with or initiative, it's not always that, can survive in whatever place it is. And it's better in some ways, I wanna say this is gonna sound wild, but maybe not wild. It's better that we're doing this than somebody else because we wanna make sure that what we're doing in the world is gonna be fair, it's gonna be justice oriented, and it's not gonna be just going in there and taking advantage of people and uh, yeah. being, you know, vile colonialists about it. So like we can come in there and affect things and actually solve problems for people in, in places um, that's going to be more thoughtful and more empathetic. Yeah, well said. And uh, this is the last slide we have time for today. So if you want to take advantage of this uh, slash price, we didn't use a coupon because we want to do something extra special and make it more a more extensive discount than we offer with our coupons so it could be 450 off uh, a lot of you've joined uh, we've said hi to many of you make sure that you get in now because uh, christopher has a has a hard break of course he is working we do appreciate him being here uh this is the last thing though the very last slide we have time for consulting so you know i've seen you, you told me you know a lot of people that have gotten into this eventually yes. what does that look like so the first person that I saw that I really thought about the transitioning thing was somebody from my program who got a job at McKinsey. Um, really? Yeah. And, and, wow. and digital consulting, right? Like agile transformations. And this was something that's very big. It was the first thing I thought of whenever I was thinking about transitioning. And so I started doing like studying case interview uh, stuff. I would actually recommend that everybody, if they don't even want to be a consultant, just study how to become a consultant because it's going to make you really business minded yes. in a sense. Because a consultant, what they do is they go into another place, they take a framework and they analyze a the situation, they make recommendations, right? And they get paid handsomely to do it. And they actively recruit PhDs. There's a specific PhD level track at all the top three, uh, McCain, BCG and McKinsey. Uh, oh, sorry, McCain, uh, uh, that's funny. Uh, McKinsey, BCG and Bain. Uh, so, all of those things have a lot of different opportunities for you. It's a very specific skill that you can certainly master no matter what your background is. Yeah, and I think we just blew a lot of minds by saying that you can get into management consulting. Absolutely, because of that qualitative piece. Yeah. Like, you, every PhD, no matter ba their background, can do research in terms of information and or data and then analyze information and or data, uh, make conclusions, synthesize it, uh, come up with suggestions. Uh, yeah. that, that synthesis is why so many uh, interdisciplinary PhDs are, are hired at management consulting firms. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDsGetHired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.
Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. 